Good evening, everybody. We are going to continue our Bible study on fasting. I'm going to turn down my phone as not to disturb anybody. Hint, hint. Uh, that was my subtle way of asking you to turn down your phones. All right. And as I pull this out, we're going to get ready to pray. Um, we are studying about fasting. And last week we talked about fasting what it was in general, and now we're going to look at specific examples of fasting we find in the Bible. So let's open with a word of prayer, and then we'll get started. Lord Jesus, thank you. Thank you that we are here in your house tonight. Thank you that we have the ability to be here. Uh, we have the mental capacity to study your word. We have been given your Holy Spirit so that we may uh, have your word revealed to us. Jesus, I ask for nothing less than uh, a miracle tonight, that your word would be proclaimed and that we would have ears to hear and eyes to see the greatness and the wonder that is your son Jesus. May you be glorified, even as we talk about something like fasting. May you be the center. May you be the focus of all of our study. In Jesus' most precious name we pray. Amen. So last week, we talked about whether uh, what fasting is. We identified that fasting is abstaining from anything. And in general... Most of the time we talk about fasting, we talk about um, abstaining from food or from drink. And uh, we ask the question, should Christians fast? Are we required to fast? Um, the closest thing we have to a commandment uh, from Jesus is just the assumption that we would continue fasting. Uh, in the Old Testament, there was only one required day out of the year where one person would fast. That was the Day of Atonement, Yom Kippur. It was the day where the high priest went into the Holy of Holies, uh, sacrificed a bull on behalf of the nation of Israel, uh, sprinkled blood on the horns of the altar to make atonement, not cleansing, but to cover the sins of the nation of Israel. Um, we now know that Jesus is that uh, ultimate sacrifice for sin. His blood not only uh, atones for our sin, it covers and washes away our sin, uh, so that's no longer remembered. Uh, by the Lord. We now have Jesus' righteousness. And so our fasting is for a different purpose. Um, fasting uh, will not be because one day out of the year we set aside uh, to do something religious or to have some ritual practice. We're going to see, uh, through the example of King David, the art of fasting during a time of distress, during a time of repentance. And so turn with me to the book of 2 Samuel. We are going to be in chapter 12. As you are turning there, this is a pretty familiar story, at least in church, but let me recap it for you. Um, we don't spend as much time here on a Wednesday as we do on a Sunday, so I'll give you the, 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 the brief version. Uh, David is the king of Israel. Israel is experiencing one of its, one of its most prosperous times in all of history. Um, wars are being won. Nations are being subdued. Land is being taken back. And honestly, this is a, a, an easy time for the Israelites, easier in comparison to some of the more hard times. Um, David finds himself at home rather than leading the armies. He's not out in the front lines with his uh, men. He's back at home while, while his generals and the men he's appointed uh, battle these uh, go to battle for him. At home one day, he goes out on a balcony of his, of his palace, and across the way he sees a young lady bathing. 
David is a married man. David's not single. Um, he already has children. He sees this woman, and to just put it as plainly as possible, he's attracted to her and wants to have sex with her. Um, so because he's married, because he's already got a family, his position, who he is, he is getting ready to commit a grave sin. And he follows through with it. And, you know, with most, uh, you know, at least the stereotype of an adulterous uh, relationship, it's usually clandestine. Not a lot of people know about it. It's hidden because people will get hurt. Um, with a man like David, there was no way to keep this secret. Um, I doubt David went to Bathsheba. I'm speculating. I doubt David went to Bathsheba's door and said, hey, come on over to the palace. Um, I would guess that he sent men to go get her and um, didn't leave much choice for her to come to be with him. And so David and Bathsheba uh, have a sexual relationship and enough time passes to where Bathsheba realizes that she's pregnant. All the while, Uriah, the, the husband of Bathsheba, is at war in David's army. Um, it's kind of like a kick in the teeth. Not only is, is David cheating on his own family with this married woman, the man who she is married to works for him, is employed by him as a, as a soldier. And so this was all going to be just a one-time thing or a, 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 you know, a, a brief thing until Bathsheba gets pregnant. And so now David has to come up with this plan to hide his sin. And in doing so, he decides, you know what, I'll invite Uriah back home. I'll send a letter. He will come back home. I'll encourage him to go home, rest, enjoy some time with his wife. And then that way, he'll think that it's his child. Um, well, Uriah, just, just, to keep, just to keep making it making it worse, just to keep showing how vile of a sin that David has committed. Uriah comes home. He doesn't just refuse to sleep with his own wife. He, he says, I'm not even going to sleep in the house. My, my brothers, my soldiers, uh, my brothers in arms, these soldiers I fight with, they're out in the field still, and I'm home. I'm going to rest outside on the porch. I'm not even going to go in my house, and then I'm going to go right back to the battlefield. So David's little plan to cover up his uh, his sin blows up in his face. So to show the complete depravity of man, even the even a man that the Bible says uh, was after God's own heart, um, he decides I'm going to kill Uriah. And so he sends he sends a letter back with Uriah. Uriah goes with his death sentence in his hand, gives it to the leader. The letter says when you're taking when you're taking arrows, when you're taking uh, the the offense of another army, have everybody step back so that Uriah is singled out so that he will definitely be killed. It, it still surprises me that God didn't cause Uriah to keep living at that point, um, just to just to keep uh, David's plans from, from complete fruition. But this plan works. Uriah is killed in battle, and shortly thereafter, um, the casket's barely closed. Bathsheba moves into the palace to be David's wife. So this all happens, and um, if you're like me, you some of us read that too fast. Okay, David had uh, an adulterous affair with this lady, and then you know took her to be his wife, killed Uriah. Well, that's bad. Let's keep reading another chapter. Let's just let that sink in for just a moment. 
David cheated on his family, his wife, took another man's wife, impregnated her, and then when you know when it became obvious, at least to him and to Bathsheba, that she was pregnant, he killed Uriah. I'm not a person who likes to to create levels of sin. But at this point, David is not the man after God's own heart that, that we know from the story of him and, and Goliath. You know, the, the, the David who, who slain his tens of thousands, tens of thousands of, of soldiers, the one who went into battle with, with no odds in his favor, but yet came out victorious because of the Lord. This is, this is the same man, but we find him in a different stage of life. And so God has to deal with him. Not only is he a man of God, he's the king of the people. He was appointed by God, chosen by God, because Saul messed everything up. King Saul before him became so self-centered and became so, uh, you know, worshipped himself essentially, that God had to replace him. God now has to do something with David. And so he sends a man named Nathan. Nathan's a prophet. Nathan is... One of the few people in the Bible, he's not perfect, but he's one of the few people in the Bible where he doesn't have a story of, of, of downfall. You know, there's no story of, of Nathan being really great and then, oh yeah, he did this. We know by Romans chapter 3 that all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. That includes Nathan. But most of what's accounted for in the Bible uh, in regards to Nathan is good stuff. He's there when Solomon is inaugurated as king. He's, he plays a big part in that. You know, uh, one of David's own children is named Nathan. My assumption, and this is speculation, my assumption is that he named him after the prophet Nathan. But Nathan is used by God to confront David. Um, my understanding of, of, of any king, but especially a king uh, appointed by God, is that they hold the power to take a person's life. Um, if somebody is out of line, if somebody comes against the throne, then the king has the right to take that person's life. And Nathan's going to do just that. Nathan comes in, and in, in chapter 12, uh, starting in verse 1, Nathan meets with David and begins to tell him a story. Tells him a story about a, a rich ruler who had tons of sheep, and he wants to basically have a barbecue. He's going to take one of these sheep, he's going to slaughter them, and he's going to uh, serve them for this feast or banquet. But he doesn't want to get rid of one of his own sheep. He looks across the way, and he sees this, this, this one man with his one sheep. And the one man loves his sheep, and he decides, you know what? I don't want to lose any of my sheep. I'll take this man's sheep. And so he goes, steals the sheep, uh, the sheep, and slaughters it, and cooks that one instead. And so, in telling that story, uh, in verse five, it's or, yeah, in verse five it says of chapter twelve, then David's anger was greatly kindled against this this man, this theoretical man. And he says to Nathan, as the Lord lives, the man who has done this deserves to die. And he shall restore the lamb fourfold because he did this thing and because he had no pity. David hears this story and says, you know what? That's a vile man. That's an evil man. A man that would do such a thing. He should himself pay back not just one sheep, but four sheep. There is a great cost for what he has done. Not only does he deserve to restore what he has taken, he deserves to die in what I find to be one of the greatest moments in the Bible, outside of anything that pertains to the, the, the first-hand account of Jesus walking on the earth, 
This is one of those moments where you, you see David just tying the noose around his neck. You see him going through this story, not realizing it's about him. Nathan in verse 7 says, Nathan said to David, you are the man. Now in our day and age, you are the man means something different. It means a good thing. You are the man. That means you're good at something. That means you're respected at what you do. But that's not what this means. David says, or excuse me, Nathan says to David, you are the man. Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, I anointed you king over Israel, and I delivered you out of the hand of Saul. I gave you your master's house and your master's wives into your arms and gave you the house of Israel and of Judah. And if this were too little, I would add to you as much more. Why have you despised the word of the Lord to do what is evil in his sight? You have struck down Uriah the Hittite with the sword and have taken his wife to be your wife and have killed him with the sword of the Amorites. Now therefore the sword shall never depart from your house because you have despised me and have taken the wife of Uriah the Hittite to be your wife. Thus says the Lord, Behold, I will raise up evil against you out of your own house and I will take your wives before your eyes and give them to your neighbor and he shall lie with your wives in the sight of this son. For you, did it, for you did it secretly, but I will do this thing before all Israel and before the son, the physical son. We find later, um, after all this, the rest of David's life is never quite as solid as it was before this. Um, this man that God mentions through the prophet uh, Nathan will turn out to be Absalom, David's own son, will rise up against him to try to take the kingship away from his father. He will take his father's concubines and, and, and literally have physical relationships with them out in the middle of, of, of for everyone to see, defiling his father's concubines. It's a show of, it's a show of, of, of authority. It's a show of, of dominance to show how feeble his father was. Um, later on, David will try to number the people. That will be a grave sin in the eyes of God because David's not trusting in the Lord. He's now trusting in the number of his army. And you see plagues coming against Israel and all that. The, the house of the Lord is never quite the same after this while David's reigning and ruling. Since David's sin has been exposed. Some of you might see this and say, wow, that's, that sucks. I, I would never want to go through that. I will tell you this, that as bad as this seems, I think it would be worse for the Lord to allow David to continue in his sin. To allow this to just continue to the day David died. To me, this is an act of grace that God would send a man to confront him about his sin. Yeah, it's painful. Yeah, David is gonna he's gonna go through a lot because of his one stupid choice. But for God to abandon and dis disregard David for the rest of his life would be even worse. The fact that God would have grace and mercy upon David, even when David did something so horrible, it it, it speaks volumes about the grace of God. In verse 13 it says, David said to Nathan, I have sinned against the Lord. And Nathan said to David, the Lord has also put away your sin. You shall not die. A lot of people like to paint the New Testament as the age of God's grace and, and that, that grace before that is completely different. We see basically the same thing we preach today here. We see David repenting to the Lord and David finding the forgiveness of the Lord. However, what, we're, what he's going to not see is the relief of the consequences of his choices. You know, there are still people today that live with the consequences of, of Nazi Germany. There are people who, who, whose whole lives were altered. Nothing was restored to the way it was before they were put in concentration camps. 
you know the sin of Nazi Germany still lives today. Um, the effects of it, the consequences are still there. There are men who have been forgiven of it in the eyes of the Lord, but the consequences still remain. So David repents. Verse 14 says, Nevertheless, but because by this deed you have utterly scorned the Lord, the child who was born to you shall die. Then Nathan went to his house. Nathan just leaves. That's the end of his part. His job is done. And the Lord afflicted the child that Uriah's wife bore to David, and he became sick. This child that's going to be born, this child that was born out of infidelity, um, even though David and, your, and Bathsheba are now, uh, uh, they're now married, they're now a couple, um, this child is going to die, the Lord says. Um, there's something I don't want to gloss over, and there's something I don't want to create doctrine out of, but this is it. Um, sin does not always guarantee that you are going to be afflicted by the Lord in the same way that this account has happened. I don't want to say that there are certain sins that are so grave that God will do this as a punishment. I believe that this was going to happen whether the Lord intervened or not. This child's life was going to die. The only difference here is that David has privileged knowledge at this point through the prophet Nathan that this child's going to die. I myself my wife and I, many, all of you know, we, we, our first son uh, went to be with the Lord after three days. Lots of people have miscarriages. Lots of people um, have babies that are born prematurely or taken at a young age. Um, and we've met them as a result of this. And I will tell you that whether there was sin involved or not, whether somebody was walking with the Lord or not, it hurts like nobody's business. It hurts like, and I don't use this as a phrase, I use this literally, it hurts like hell to go through something so painful. So I don't want to just gloss over this. Because in this, you know, Bathsheba's not even mentioned. We don't know what she goes through in all of this. She could be destroyed and devastated because of all this, because she made a foolish choice too. She could have resisted, it may have cost her her life, but she could have still resisted and not be in the place that she's in now. And so... David has this knowledge that this child's going to die. The child's born, he's sick, he's going to die. In verse 16, Then Nathan went to his house, and the Lord afflicted the child and that Uriah's wife bore to David, and he became sick. I think it's, I don't know what you would call it, it's not ironic, but I think it's, it's, God is showing us something. He doesn't refer to Bathsheba as David's wife. He keeps referring to him as, referring to her as Uriah's wife. I think we need to uh, take a moment to realize that the things that we take possession of sometimes, um, they really aren't ours. And uh, with David, just because he may have went through the quote-unquote legal channels of taking a widow and marrying her, God is still looking upon this woman as Uriah's wife. Now, David's done this. David, no, no legal right has made anything right out of what David has done. Verse 16 says, David therefore sought God on behalf of the child. And here's our, here's our verse for the night. And David fasted and went in and lay all night on the ground. And the elders of the house stood, stood beside him to raise him from the ground, but he would not, nor did he eat food with them. David's devastated. You get the impression when, when Absalom uh, comes against the throne, as much as David has to run and flee and and he realizes how bad this is. You still see a father's heart for his son. 
He remembers that this was his child. You get this impression that David loved his children. He loved his sons. And, and this one child who was born sick is his son no matter what. And he's, he's broken over it. And that brokenness, that distress that he is in leads him to fasting. Now, most wrong teaching about fasting will tell you, you fast, you get what you want. In this instance, we are not going to see David get what he wants. Uh, well, he does. He doesn't get the child. What he gets is the will of the Lord, and he gets a changed heart, and he gets a changed perspective. And so in verse 18, now on the seventh day, the child died, and the servants of David were afraid to tell him that the child was dead. For they said, behold, while the child was yet alive, we spoke to him, and he did not listen to us. How then can we... Say to him, the child is dead. He may do himself some harm. See, David fasted. David refused food. Uh, he refused comfort. And so their logical reasoning was, if that's the way it was when the child was alive, now that we tell him that the child's dead, what's he, is he going to take his own life? You know, is he going to take our lives because he's so mad and just wants vengeance? But when David saw this, this is verse 19, when he saw that his servants were whispering together, David understood that the child was dead. And David said to his servants, is the child dead? They said, he is dead. Then David arose from the earth and washed and anointed himself and changed his clothes. And he went to the house of the Lord and worshipped. He then went into his own house. And when he asked, they set food before him and he ate. Then his servants said to him, what is this thing that you have done? You fasted and wept for the child while he was alive. But when the child died, you arose and ate food. Flash forward uh, to the Gospels. There's a young girl. She's 12 years old. She dies. Jesus goes to the house, um, and when he gets there, there's people mourning and wailing and dancing and just all distraught. Um, nobody's eating. There's, there's a fasting because someone has died, especially a child has died. Um, and so these men are kind of operating from that same mentality. You mourn when the child dies. You don't mourn when the child's alive. Once they die, then you're going through sorrow. Then you're mourning. Then you're fasting. What is this all about? David explains. Then David arose from the earth. I already read that. Verse 22. And he said, while the child was alive, I fasted and wept. For I said, who knows whether the Lord will be gracious to me, that the child may live. But now he is dead. Why should I fast? Can I bring him back again? I shall go to him, but he will not return to me. There are some life lessons and they're, they're the big ones, they're the ones we don't want to go through, that offer us insight into the Lord's thinking, his mentality, unlike any other event. We have through Jesus everything we need to know about God. And God, through Jesus, uses events like child loss, divorce, job loss, cancer, the big things of life. He uses those to teach us things that we could probably not learn in any other fashion or way. In this, even knowing that Nathan the prophet had prophesied that the baby would die, David still knew and understood the grace of God to where he could say, you know what, I'm going to fast and pray. Who knows? Maybe God will be gracious to me. Maybe the Lord will change his mind. But what he does instead, God changes David's mind. The desired effect of David's fasting was not to just give up food. David was hurting. David was in distress. David wanted something that he could not get himself. 
Now, David had repented. David had asked for forgiveness. David had admitted his guilt. But then the Lord brings that around. The Lord changes David's mind. And there are times in our life where there's things we just don't want to happen. They're, they just, they're painful. They're, there's no way to paint it. There's no silver lining. They're just bad. And we need the Lord to change our perspective. We talked about this on Sunday, giving us eyes to see, ears to hear. The book of Revelation is full of that phrase. Eyes have not seen, ears have not heard, except for the fact that God has revealed to us truth. David says something very profound that, that my fasting, my hopes is that in my fasting the child would live. But now that the child's gone, fasting won't bring that child back. Fasting won't change the events that have happened. But, that, but this I know, he won't return to me, but I'll go to be with him. David had an understanding through all of this that this child may be dead physically, but that he lived with the Lord now. Now, why do we teach this tonight? Because we are going to go through times of distress unlike any other person on the planet. Every trial that you are going through right now or previously or in the future will be unlike anything that I will go through or have been through or I'm about to go to. Fasting is a way to ready ourselves in those times of distress to not change the things that are happening around us, but to be changed by God so that we can glorify Jesus in them. Some people are a really good bad witness to Christianity. They fight, they hem, they haw, they, they gripe about everything that's going on, and, they, and they, they tarnish their own testimony. They preach on one hand that God is so good and Jesus is so great, but life is so awful and it's miserable. And, and it's like, well, wait a minute. If you've got Jesus and he's what the Bible says, how can life be so miserable? I mean, I, I get that it's, it can have its downtimes, but, but is there certainly no, is there no joy if the fruit of the Spirit is joy, where's the joy? With the fruit of the Spirit, joy is not just, it's not just happiness. It's, it's joy in the midst of trial. It's joy in the midst of suffering. It's joy in the midst of, of trial. And there are times where we ourselves just simply cannot muster the type of mind change we need to get to that place. To be able to walk away like David did, seemingly in the blink of an eye. Oh, the child's dead? Okay, bring me some food. I'm going to wash my face. Let's live life again. It's seemingly like, like that. That's not as easy for everyone. Maybe David was just could, could, come, ugh, could compartmentalize. Okay, this is, that's done. I'm good. I can get up. I can go. Um, but not a lot of people are like that. Fasting is a way to set aside time because you are in distress to ask the Lord, what is going on? To, to ask, God, do something different. Even though I know you're not going to, I'm still going to ask. Some might say that's an unbiblical prayer. I would say that's what Jesus prayed in the garden. If Jesus did it, I'm going to say it's okay to do too. He prayed, God, let this cup, Father, let this cup pass from me, but nevertheless, your will be done instead of mine. 
He knew he had to bear that cup, but he asked anyways. David knew the child was going to die. He asked anyways. And then what we see is God changing him. Nobody told David to fast. There was no custom, no ritual that said, if your child is dying, you must fast. And that's exemplified in the fact that the servants were so astounded. Why is he fasting? Why is he fasting right now? It doesn't make any sense. Fasting is simply a tool, a weapon. Could you learn these things while eating? I suppose you can, because fasting is not magic. It's not, a, it's not the magic bullet that makes things stick. However, I would say that when you take away something so primal as food, there's this moment where the Lord must sustain you because you're going without food where you are so focused on him that something that's such a necessity no longer becomes a priority. Um, it is easier when we're going through distress. You know, I'm an, I'm an emotional eater. You know, if I go through something very heavy, I eat a lot. But some people don't do that. Some people go through something emotionally heavy, they stop eating. And so it becomes, it's this natural reflex to stop eating because they're in such distress. Well, just not eating is not going to make anything happen. But, Coupling fasting with prayer, supplication. David didn't just sit there and not eat. What did he do? He laid himself out on the floor before the Lord. He cried out to God. He worshipped the Lord. He went into the temple. I mean, he didn't just sit there and not eat. Fasting and prayer and worship all worked together to change and to make David the man who was ready to face something so distressful, even the loss of a child. So when you're going through times of distress, it might be in your best interest to consider fasting. Now, what can you fast from? Food is always the first go-to, and I think that's a good one. Um, my wife and I right now are doing what's called the Daniel fast. Um, you basically give up. Uh, you basically, or it's easier identified by what you eat, by what, by, not by what you don't eat. You eat fruits and vegetables. That's really hard because I'm a kind of guy that likes meat. I like all kinds of meat. There are a few meats that I've eaten that I haven't really liked. And so this is kind of difficult. But for me, I struggle with overeating. I struggle with the emotional eating. And, and sometimes uh, just decompressing at the end of the day has to involve some type of snack or salty food or junk food. And uh, you're not eating because you're hungry. You're eating to sort of uh, – you're using food or eating as a Band-Aid. And so for myself, the reason why I'm fasting at the beginning of this year is not to lose weight, not to become healthy. It's to crucify my flesh that is out of control. Um, could the Lord have used some other way? I suppose, but he wasn't. So I decided I will, I will afflict myself, if you will, not to earn God's favor, not so that he'll love me more, but so that I could separate myself from the lifestyle that I previously had just two weeks ago. Um, if you're in distress, fasting is a great way to kind of quiet all the noise. Quiet all the noise around you and just get in with the Lord and read your word, pray, and, and, and just not focus on anything else, even food. When the Israelites fasted, 
they fasted because they knew the sins they had committed as a nation, both corporately and individually. There was a sadness. There was a mourning. I'm not eating not because I'm not hungry. I'm not eating because I realize the gravity of the situation. If you're going through distress, pray to the Lord. Lord, what can I give up? It may not be food because maybe food's not a problem for you. Maybe food is, is not one of those things that you dwell upon. It's not, a, it's not a vice, if you will. But maybe it's television. Maybe it's the internet. Maybe it's something that, that's not necessarily a bad thing, but you spend a lot of time in. And so you're just going to take a time, a day, five days, ten days, a couple of weeks, where, Lord, instead of watching TV or being on the internet or, or whatever, playing video games or, or, or anything, uh, I'm going to spend that time in prayer and fasting because my flesh wants to zone out and just do these other things that provide me temporary relief, but I need real relief. And so I'm going to fast. And maybe I'm going to fast a meal or I'm going to fast for a day, or maybe I'm going to um, stay away from internet or television for a few days or a few weeks. Um, and, and I'm just looking to change, Lord. I'm looking to, for me to be changed. Um, it's the equivalent of moving closer to somebody. It really is. It's one of the ways we flee youthful lusts and passions and we draw near to the Lord. We draw near to the Lord through worship. And when we fast, especially from things like media, like I said before, you quiet down all those other noises. How many people here, when you pray, you begin to pray, and the next thing you know, you're thinking about what's going to be on TV next, or the last thing you saw on Facebook, or the bills you have to pay tomorrow. I mean, your mind is just this crazy thing that, that just keeps rolling no matter how much you want it to stop. Um, many times, I believe it's because we cram so much stuff into our head. We're constantly hearing something. We're constantly being told something. We're, we're constantly reading things. And all these little voices from media are just everywhere. And sometimes just abstaining from that for a little bit quiets those down. So that the voice of the Lord becomes the loudest voice that we hear. It's not that he can't speak louder than these other voices. But there's certainly something we can do to make the other voices quiet down. And so if you're in distress tonight, for whatever reason, consider fasting. David fasted. David didn't get what he wanted in one sense, but in the other sense he did. He wanted the will of the Lord. And what that did was it, it changed him. It made him ready to grow. Instead of when the baby died, instead of having a long mourning period, instead of kicking and fighting against reality, instead of fleeing from the kingdom and cursing everybody and killing people because he's mad, he's able to deal with and process the loss of his son. The good news of this story is that though David sinned, God did not completely remove this these promises that he had made to David. We still see that, that through the years, Jesus is born. And Jesus is born through the line of David. That this, this king that would rule forever, that was promised to David, still comes and his name is Jesus. And our goal and our emphasis and, our, and what we are striving for is always Jesus, his will, what he wants, so that we can be the best representation of Christianity that this planet can see. Not to be haughty, not to be you know, religious, but to draw close to him and to be changed by him. And fasting can help us in that. 
Jesus told his disciples that when you pray, don't be like the Pharisees. But when you pray, do so in quiet. You know, wash your face. Don't look like you're fasting. Don't walk around with your with your cheeks sucked in and stop washing your face so that people can say, "Oh, you look like you're fasting. You're pretty religious." Wow, come speak at our come speak at our festival or come speak at our convention. You must be a really religious guy. So no, don't don't even don't make it obvious to people. Fast. Does anybody have any questions before we go into prayer tonight about fasting? This is a very specific fast. There's no mandate where you have to do this. To me, that makes it all the that makes me desire it more. I don't know if you guys are like me, but it does. The fact that I'm not commanded to do it makes it more intriguing. But you're not mandated to do it. So does anybody have any questions in regards to fasting? Uh, fasting in general, fasting for David, uh, and David, and the way that David did, I should say, um, or anything else. All right. Well, then we're going to go into prayer. And if you do have any questions, we can hang out after church a little bit. Um, but for now, we're going to pray. Lord Jesus, we, we praise you tonight. And Lord, our goal tonight is to see is to see Jesus even through something like fasting. And Lord, I'm asking that you know the last thing we want is to give up food, to be religious, to be like the Pharisees, and to not be any closer to you at the end of whatever kind of fast we decide to do. Lord, we are we are more concerned with drawing close to you than than the food we abstain from or the or the thing we we cut out of our lives for a time. And so, Jesus, all I'm asking is that as people are engaged in you, as your Holy Spirit directs them and leads them, that they would fast and pray and worship you as you direct them and lead them. I thank you that in fasting, that we're expected to fast, but we have great liberty in how we fast and when we fast and why we fast. I pray tonight that as we've seen David fasting in such distress, over the not only over the loss of a son, but but in distress because of his own sin. Because all of this could have been prevented had he just yielded to your commands, yielded to your spirit, and not engaged in this uh, infidelity and adultery with, with Bathsheba. That a lot of this could have been avoided. But I thank you, Lord, that even in his sin, and the, truth, the same is true for our sin today, that even in sin, Lord, you can produce a great thing. That through this lineage that that David would have come after him that your son would be produced that Jesus would come the lion of the tribe of Judah from the lineage of David the root of David that he would come and that he would rule and reign forever I thank you that our sin does not limit you that you are even bigger than our own sin Father I thank you that we get the great example of David's repentance that he recognized his sin we thank you that like David, that you don't allow us to just sin and then walk away from us, but you're there to show us our sin, whether through a prophet or your word or just through wise counsel, to see the folly of our ways. And Jesus, if we are in sin tonight or if we are in just in distress, Lord, may we pray. May we fast. May we abstain from, from food or drink or, or media and draw closer to you. May your Holy Spirit lead and guide us and direct us in that. Father, I pray tonight for these people uh, that have been mentioned. 
Lord, bless this church. I love South Bay Chapel. I love every person that comes through those doors. I love them through you and with your love, and I pray your blessings for them. That as they go home tonight, they'd have safe travels. As they sleep tonight, they'd have good dreams. That tomorrow, as tomorrow comes, they would have new ways and, 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 and be encouraged to stress themselves to love and to serve others, people in their household and people outside of their homes. Lord, may you be blessed. May Jesus' name continue to be lifted up in this place, that all people may be drawn unto him. We give you the praise today in Jesus' name. Amen.